Hi, I'm Adrienne. I help people tell the stories they were told not to talk about. Maybe by their own inner critic. Maybe by the world. Either way, I'm here to serve as a kind of story midwife, birthing these beautiful naked narratives and helping them thrive. Telling our own stories and speaking our own truth should be the easiest thing in the world, but it's not. We all get blocked. We all feel censored, stymied, or silenced at times. We struggle to find the right entry point, to articulate the message we want to convey, and to identify the ideal audience to receive it. And that, my friends, is where I come in. I'm a professional brand voice consultant and story coach. I help entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, storytellers, and anyone else who is ready to start living out loud to deliver their authentic voice directly to those who most need to hear it. Are you ready to get authentic? Good, because that's allowed. Luck is neither good nor bad. Sometimes winning a Fulbright scholarship to study Francophone West African theater gets you shot at in a coup d'etat. Sometimes being held hostage saves your life. Sometimes fame makes you realize the value of privacy. In real life, saviors can transform into persecutors and strangers into heroes. You just never know at the start of a journey where it may take you by the end. I wrote this book, Melting Ivory, partly because, well, all this crazy stuff really happened, and I thought someone should know about it. But mostly because I wanted everyone out there to know something it took me a long time to learn, that you are not a victim. You are the hero of your own story. You just have to recognize that everything that happens, happens for you, not to you. Part memoir, part travel journal, part Sturm und Drang romance, and part abusive relationship survival guide, Melting Ivory is a coming-of-age tale, against a tumultuous, shifting backdrop. Abidjan, Dakar, The Rez, Seattle, Santa Barbara. Here's hoping it inspires you to see yourself as the hero of your own story, even when your choices are spectacularly unheroic. Here's a couple of quick samples to get you hooked. Blood Blue. The 18th of March, 2002. 7.26 p.m. Isla Vista, California. As the dining room table comes crashing to the floor, scattering chairs, books, and salt and pepper shakers on its way, I have time for one last thought as I sink down the wall and onto the linoleum. The knife is on the counter. I can see it there, on the chopping block, the handle pointed enticingly out to the side. How long do I have before he notices it too? I should be looking for escape routes, I know, planning my next move, but instead, I'm looking at my hands, shivering in my lap like a couple of epileptic lab rodents, and I notice for the first time that my veins seem to form capital letters. Y-A-Y. Yay! It's my death day. Happy death day to me. I notice, too, what a lovely shade of blue my blood is, and I wonder what that color would be called. Azure? Cornflower? Columbia? Maybe just blood blue. That's a thing, right? If it isn't. It should be. 
But when it hits this off, off white linoleum, it won't be blue anymore. It will be red, deep red, rich red, crimson, scarlet, velvet. And then hours from now, it will be black, a coagulated sticky mess of clotted black blood looking even darker against my unnaturally ivoried skin. Someone will have to get down on hands and knees to scrub it off. Probably an underpaid member of the university's housing maintenance staff. Who knows? It might even be him. But one thing is certain. It will not be me. One way or another, this will all be over soon. The eggshell ballet. The Scheherazade charade. I have reached my thousand and first night, and at last, I can retire. The thought is weirdly comforting, and a smile hijacks my face. He regards that smile like a one-finger salute, and it pushes him over the edge from barely controlled rage into totally unhinged territory. I watch as he kicks over the last dining room chair left standing and swipes the chopping knife from the counter in a single fluid movement. Under other circumstances, it would have been quite an impressive move, beautiful even in a kung fu fighting sort of way. But this is not an action flick, I remind myself, sitting on the kitchen floor, staring at the gold band shackling my ring finger. This is the life that you chose for yourself. And here is where it ends. Like any frog who has been made suddenly and acutely aware that it is in a pot of boiling water, I take a moment to ask myself, how did I get here? What was the series of choices in this choose-your-own-adventure we call life that led me to this sad and stupid ending? And so back I go, pulling the time thread from here to there in search of the origin of my origin story. This is where I landed. p.m. Yupagon. Christmas Eve in Abidjan. A coup d'etat has rocked the country. The military has taken over, ousting President Bédier, who has already fled to France with his family. The faces are grave, gathered around the radio. Seca announced to the family that it was all so disorganized that nothing permanent could possibly come of it. Everybody is angry and jumping up into the air. Soon they will fall, and then they won't know where to run. This will all be over soon. The others shook their heads, listening to the radio voice telling them about the soldiers who shot up the TV station's broadcasting antennas. They flinched altogether at every gunshot that peppered the background atmosphere. Now in the direction of Yubogon, now in the direction of Atikoube. They were terrified, never having seen a coup d'etat. I thought it was the most exciting thing that had happened since my arrival and was secretly thrilled to be a part of it. Low materialized around 8.30. There was a brief, awkward exchange between Lo, Maribeth, and me. I was unsure now as to whether he wanted me to meet him chez lui, as written in his note, or if there had been a change in plans. 
but since he didn't mention anything, I assumed we were still on for 9.30 a.m. and slipped out while the others were distracted by the radio voice. En route, I noticed a group of people running toward me and shuffled over to the side of the street to let them pass. Then I saw what they were running from, and I was struck with a cognitive dissonance so strong that for a moment I disbelieved my own eyes. This was not a scene I recognized as reality, but some nightmare vision of a bad action flick I would have turned the channel on back home. A flatbed truck full of soldiers in their khaki green pants, shirts stripped off and tied across their sweat-drenched chests, crisscrossing the strings of ammo they wore like Boy Scout sashes covered in merit badges, proudly vaunting their recent accomplishments. They were shouting and laughing, drinking bumse straight from the bottle and shooting their guns in the air. I turned to look back in the direction from which I had come, hoping to see some place of refuge in case any of those guns tipped downward. Instead, I saw Lo, several blocks away, his green boo-boo streaming behind him, beckoning me frantically to come to him. No, to stay where I was. No, to get out of the street. No, to come to him. I looked back at the truck. One of the soldiers had noticed me and was yelling something about La Blanche. I watched, paralyzed, as the barrel of several AK-47s angled in my direction simultaneously. I heard a cacophony of voices, could only pick out a few recognizable words such as adjoie and bédier, but there was no time to parse it in the moment. All I could do was wince and await the inevitable. Suddenly, a pair of enormous, calloused hands grabbed me from behind and lowered me down onto the orange dirt sidewalk face first. I felt a man climb on top of me, his pungent, stinging sweat dripping down over my face and onto the dirt below. And for the first time, I felt real fear. My mind had no context for a truck full of drunken AK-47-wielding military dudes using me for target practice, but rape? That one I knew. I was still racking my brain for a viable counterattack when I realized, no, this man is not raping me. He's using his body as a shield. This total stranger is risking his life to protect mine. I heard a few shots ping against the ground, saw the dust clouds where they hit, far too close for comfort as the truck rumbled by. Every part of my body felt as though it were being pricked with a million pins simultaneously. Was I hit? Was he? I had no idea. So, there you go. If you like what you heard and you'd like to hear more, please, please buy the book. You can buy it on Kindle for less than $4, or you can buy it in paperback and have an actual copy to hold in your hands. You can click the link in the show notes, or you can just go to Amazon.com and type in Melting Ivory. And if you'd like to hear it read aloud a little bit more, I am doing something right now on Facebook. Every Saturday at 2 p.m., I do a Facebook Live where I read a section of the book aloud. I will eventually make an audiobook, but it might take me a little while. So in the meantime, I hope you'll come and join me on Saturdays at 2 p.m. PST. Stay safe, stay sane, and keep creating.